Hello everybody and welcome to our virtual 67 Palmal. Um, finally for today we'll be talking with Chris Carpenter who'll join us from Napa Valley to discuss Napa Valley mountain fruit that's included in many of the Jackson family wines that he makes uh, including Cardinal, Manbrave, La Cuya and La Jota. Uh, now we're very pleased to welcome back Jasper Morris, MW, author of the epic tome that is Inside Burgundy and he'll be talking to us tonight about how biodynamics has developed in Burgundy over the years and naming six of his favorite biodynamic producers. Uh, please chat away on the side, share with us what you're drinking, where you're drinking it from, and also share on social media with 67 hashtag from home. As usual, we'll have 15 minutes at the end where you can ask Jasper all your questions. Um, so a big welcome back to Jasper. Good to see you as always. Yeah, yeah. All, all is well here, um, apart from the, the weather's collapsed, but uh, uh, the growers are pretty happy. Um, they could do with some slightly cooler weather and uh, they want to stop the harvest getting even earlier, the grapes right. going away. I must say I'm enjoying your snaps on Instagram of your vineyard strolls past yes. all these amazing vineyards. Well, I'm, I'm very fortunate uh, because I'm living here, because most of the other Burgundy critics are sort of stuck, confined in uh, the States or UK or wherever. But I can actually get around and I'm now starting to be able to go and see the growers again. Fantastic. So this should be fun. Um, those of you who haven't got the wines, you can see on the chat alongside which wines we're going to be tasting tonight. And I've uh, selected a nice mixed bag covering different styles, different uh, locations, appellations. And of course, all six uh, different producers, but uh, people I know well and people who thoroughly embraced the biodynamic uh, idea. So a few words on that, or, or, or perhaps to start with, a few words on how farming has progressed, because uh, growing grapes is really just a form of agriculture. We like to call it viticulture, but frankly, it's just agriculture with, uh, uh, with vines. And prior to the Second World War, people did what they could do. Uh, they weren't using too much in the way of artificial, uh, either um, fertilizers or weed killers or pesticides or anything like that. Uh, it was very physical work, uh, rudimentary tractors, a few horses of course as well. And then in the 50s, 50s through to the 70s, along came the chemical uh, options and people started killing off what they thought was the bad stuff and then compensating by fertilizing chemically as well. Well inevitably the vineyards didn't like that and uh, it changed the pH balance. It killed off uh, all the good things in the soil and in the uh, little insects, uh, as well as killing off the bad things. And so there had to be a reaction. There was, um, people were maybe a little bit slow to react, but uh, many did. And the first thing we saw was a move towards organic farming, or even if not completely organic, at least to plowing the vineyards and using as few chemical additions as possible. And then up popped this idea of biodynamic. And uh, one of the first practitioners in Burgundy would have been Anne-Claude Lefleve and also uh, La Lubie's Loire, they were right at the start. And before that in the Loire was Nicolas Jolie. But the concept of biodynamics goes back a little bit earlier. So we need to talk about a man called, uh, well, a complicated man called Rudolf Steiner, um, born in 1861, was a philosopher with a strong religious um, bent. Uh, he followed a lot of what Goethe had been saying, developed his own ideas, something called theosophy. Um, 
And then really towards the end of his life, only in the 1920s, died in 1926, uh, did he start looking at agriculture and developing some biodynamic ideas for agriculture. And it was much more agriculture than viticulture because he was a teetotaler, uh, didn't drink, didn't approve of it. And um, something I'm sorry to say is that in fact, uh, the end of his life, um, uh, he succumbed to uh, stomach problems. So that doesn't necessarily say a great deal about what he ate and uh, what he chose not to drink. But he gave a series of lectures in German, and I don't read German, um, but I'm told they're fairly unintelligible. I did start to read them in English, and possibly it was the translation that was bad, or possibly it was pretty stodgy in English, and I did find it something of a struggle. But he is the founder, and it's been kept alive across the decades since by a number of people, particularly a really interesting woman uh, called Maria Tun, who died just a few years ago, at an advanced age, her son Matthias has, has continued it. And she really de developed the idea with lots of experimentation uh, <clears throat> uh, in agriculture again, rather than the vines, recording everything, trying things out, seeing what worked, what didn't work, and then producing biodynamic calendars, which have been very useful. So what, how does it differ from straightforward organics? Because Broadly speaking, and of course it's a ludicrous simplification, the concept of organics is simply that you don't poison the earth and you don't poison your products, you do the best you can. Having said which, what organics says is that you mustn't use synthetic chemical um, treatments, but you're still actually allowed to use treatments which are toxic as long as the toxins are natural ones. So it's not absolutely straightforward. <clears throat> Biodynamics looks a bit further, it wants you to work uh, with the earth and more than just the earth, with the cosmos. Uh, there's the idea of rays coming down into whatever you're growing. You're supposed to be improving things and building things and, and working in harmony with the cosmos all the way through. As soon as anybody mentions this word cosmos, then I'll just check the numbers. You sort of expect half the people to disappear. And actually the first time I gave a presentation uh, on biodynamic wines. It was a slightly daunting occasion because I was asked to give it to the Solicitors Wine Society in London. And so you've got a bunch of lawyers in the room and not the people who are most likely to uh, take on board the idea of something that's happening out there in the cosmos a little bit wackily. So Richard Drabble, if you're listening this evening, uh, you were there on that occasion and it actually went pretty well. I survived. Uh, and a lot of people came up to me at the end and said, there could be something in this after all. So how does it happen in practice? Um, there are a number of different strands and maybe we'll talk about them a little bit more as we go through and we look at what people do. Uh, one of the most basic things um, is to do with the cycle of uh, days. Uh, so we have what we call root days, fruit days, flower days, and uh, what have I left out, leaf days. And actually that corresponds to uh, a belief that uh, is true to almost all belief systems, whether Western or um, Oriental, is that you have something in, in the medieval Western world, it was just um, earth, air, fire and water. And we have the 12 signs of the constellation, which are basically signs divided up in those four areas. And we then translate, so water gets translated into 
uh, leaf, um, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, earth gets translated into root. And one of the principles behind biodynamics is that any particular plant that you're working with, you should ideally do any major interventions on the sign which uh, works. So the vine, the grapevine is basically about fruit. So fruit is best. Of course, it does flower, does have leaves, and it does have roots. Um, we'll come on to whether or not this influences how the wine tastes a, a little bit later on. Uh, secondly, you want to prepare the balance of your soil as well as you possibly can. And to do this, there are all sorts of different types of preparation. Two crucial ones, they're called 501 and 500 and 501, and then another half dozen at least. And in order to prepare these concoctions, you take a cow's horn and you put the concoction in the cow's horn and you bury it underground for six months and then you dig it up and it has all been wonderfully harmonized during that period. This may sound completely crazy. Wasn't an idea though that Rudolf Steiner invented because I remember back in my um, misspent days of being uh, an undergraduate, uh, I, I read history and there was a paper on uh, political philosophy that I had to do. And that included uh, somebody called John Locke, famous political philosopher, uh, flourished in the 17th century. And at one point when his political patron's party was a bit out of power, um, John Locke was sent on a tour around the vineyards uh, and also the silk industry and one or two other things through most of France. Uh, fascinating what he wrote about Bordeaux and other places. But he said, I don't understand what's going on here. These peasants bury cow horns in, in the soil, fill it up with dung. Uh, what's happening there? And uh, so that would have been a precursor several hundred years before of, of this idea. Um, the other key aspect to it is, I suppose, a version of homeopathy, which again will send a few people running for the hills. But broadly speaking, when you've got your concoctions, and you can also make them out of dried herbs and dried flowers, uh, nettles, and all sorts of other things, um, you need to turn them into a liquid which you can then spray in small volumes in your vineyard and in order to make it effective you dynamize them which means putting uh, the little bits of flour or the ash from um, uh, various things into some water and stirring it around stirring it around when the moon is in the right place and uh, and then using and then diluting it very significantly doing it dynamizing again, diluting more, and then just spraying little bits of these homeopathic doses uh, in your vineyards. And one of the things is if you've got predators that come and eat the grapes, could be birds, could be little animals, if you capture them, um, and sadly kill them, and then if you burn the feathers of the birds or you burn the skin of the animal, uh, and then use the ashes, you can dynamize those ashes, and in theory, those um, animals or birds will no longer attack your vines. Gosh, right, okay, so, so there we are with some of the background to it. Um, keep the questions coming either on the Q&A but also um, uh, having a look on the, um, uh, uh, on the chat. I'll just try and keep in touch with that uh, and then, then on we go. We're getting some interesting comments from uh, all around the place. Uh, so, good. Um, now, let's start taking a look at the, uh, the wines. I've been able to choose some of my favorite producers. We've got a couple of whites and the rest are red. 
Um, and we're going to start down in the south in Puy-Vinzel. So if you have that, please uh, pour that. I should pour mine into my universal glass. Maestro, can we have our first map, please? Right, so uh, this is taken from the book uh, Inside Burgundy, and it was pretty difficult, unfortunately, to uh, get it all on um, uh, one page, the whole of the Puy-Frisé uh, appellation, uh, plus we also wanted to have Puy-Vinzel and Puy-Lachet. So um, you've got some of the Puy-Frisé vineyards uh, or villages, um, Solitre, Puy and Vergisson on the left. We're going to go over to the right and worry about that. Um, and you will see Frise and Chantre, which are both there in the green colour, uh, two of the Puy-Frisé um, villages. And also Chantre oh, <coughs> is interesting because most of Chantre, a little bit south facing, but the, and a little bit west facing, but most of them are east facing, facing across the valley of the River Seine, over towards Mont Blanc, um, and they, that's a great, um, uh, a great site. So uh, now let's see um, if I can annotate it all and show you. Um, so here is Vincel. It's this light blue color, and then there's a line, and it goes over the border into Lachet. So Puy Lachet, you can call Puy Vincel, not the other way around. Puy-Vincel is, is a pretty small appellation, and the key vineyard, I think, unquestionably, is this one here, Les Cars. And our friends, the Brett brothers, and the Domaine de la Souffrandière, which is the, uh, the buildings which are just above where I put that little heart. And Les Cars, it's on a super slope facing absolutely due east. It's a really magical spot, and it's very much a continuation in style, if not even better than, um, the uh, Puy-Frise from Chantre, which also has a car vineyard, au car, there. Um, and you tended to call les car, au car, uh, the, the quarter of your village where the best vineyards were. Let's go to the best quarter, was, it was sort of the idea. And most of this les car vineyard and all the top stuff is owned by the Brett brothers of uh, Domaine de la Souffrandière. And, uh, Okay, we can, uh, if you've got that, we can probably, as you can see me any on the side, we don't need to bin the map. I shall start to taste it. So um, the Brett brothers took over in the year 2000. Their grandfather had bought the Chateau and started the property in 1947. <clears throat> but in the intervening years, the wines had been made at the cooperative. Uh, 1991, the Bretts, basically the brothers, decided that they were going to want to come back when they were ready to do so. And in the next 10 years, they both of them spent quite a bit of time working at various other domains, a bit in California, probably a bit in the Antipodes. Certainly Jean-Philippe um, Brett worked, I, I first met him when he was working with Dominique Lafont and Domaine des Comptes Lafont, and uh, <coughs> starting getting the Lafont vineyards onto the biodynamic path. So we'll have a Lafont wine a little bit later on. Um, and then, it, anyway, from 2000, they started here at Domaine de la Souffrandière. The following year, they began their Brett Brothers negotiating operation as well. And they came to me and said, Jasper, we'd love you to import wines into the UK. And I said, well, look, Macron's difficult to sell, and I've already got two. I've got Olivier Merlin, and I've got Dominique Lafond, who started his Macron wines, and I've got a couple of other people. Uh, I'm not sure, but I'll taste your wines. I taste the wines, and I said, oh, I really like those, but I'm just not sure that I'll be able to do a good enough job. Anyway, they came back and sort of insisted, and I did start with them. 
and I'm so pleased that I did because I do think these are exciting wines. So this is uh, 2017, uh, a very early vintage. Um, so they started picking uh, these at the uh, end of August. Um, I don't know the precise date for this uh, vineyard. Um, they're nice old vines here, um, 45 to 80 years old, and they only keep the best for the low car bottling. Uh, the rest get declassified into a straight Puyvenzel. I'm finding the nose to be relatively open actually. I've got a tiny little bit of that gunflint stuff going on in the background, the reductive style, but it's not particularly strong in this wine. It's just there as an undercurrent. Otherwise, I don't find it all that easy to differentiate between this and the Cote d'Or uh, white. Um, maybe there's a little bit more ripeness and sweetness in the fruit, but it is actually on a very classic uh, Jurassic soil from the <coughs> Bajosian era, which is true of many of the white wines of Massopidini, um, etc. area. So uh, the geology underneath is not that different. <coughs> it spends um, up to 17 months in barrel, but there is no new wood. Occasionally they get it in a few barrels, so they have to get a very few just to renew old dead ones. Um, but effectively no new wood for this. And they nowadays vinify with minimal sulfur. Uh, this will have a small amount, it will certainly have been protected at the bottom. They're beginning to do a small range where they take vineyards they're making in this regular way and others which are pretty much no sulfur which are called the cuvee zen alongside. So <clears throat> that's their first offering. Now they actually moved into, they started as organic and indeed biodynamic right from the start so we haven't been able to compare uh, before and after but these are people who are really committed to everything that they do um, and um, uh, <clears throat> um, but I, I, I can't make the comparison of, of, of what happened before, but they are thoroughly biodynamic and uh, I think it, it's a great source. Um, David has just asked, made the point is do you think you get a little bit more sweetness on the nose in Macanay wines? Uh, and that's uh, predominantly true. If it's gone as far as caramel, David, then maybe your sample has, has not stayed as, as fresh as, as we, would, we, we would have hoped. Good. Um, that will, that will do me on, on that uh, particular um, picture, uh, Ronan. Uh, we'll come back to, to full screen. I can get a better chance to looking at the um, uh, chat if we do that. 2017, of course, um, second favorite white wine vintage of the last 10 years after 2014, which uh, I think just really, more I taste it, the younger 2014 seems to be getting. and. Uh, more excited I am. Uh, 2017, I do uh, thoroughly uh, appreciate, but it doesn't have quite the, sort of the grip maybe, and probably not as long-term a vintage as 2014, but, but really very nice indeed. Good, good, good. So uh, incidentally, um, uh, a horse uh, is involved. No, no animals were injured, damaged, harmed, whatever the expression is, during the making of this wine but uh, one was used to, to plough the vineyards in Le Car, especially. We will <clears throat> come back to that. So um, now we're going to move into the Cote d'Or. Uh, the remaining wines, we have one white and 
two reds from the Côte de Beaune, and then we have two Grand Cru reds from the Côte de Nuit. So that should be quite exciting. And uh, here goes them um, with, um, hmm, just loving the aftertaste of that wine. With our uh, next white, which is Domaine La Fleve and the Pyrene Maraichet Clavoyant. And the story or two to tell about this fellow. So it can be Clavoyant or Clavoyant, as you wish. Uh, here we are, let me take over the um, control of the map. Uh, I will do my usual thing. And oops, back, back. We've escaped ahead. Maybe me clicking the mouse too many times. If I take control, maybe that advances the PowerPoint that we have. Um, so here's Clavoyant in case you're having difficulty seeing it. Um, you can see, let's follow the line through. We're not quite on the same contour level as Maraché and Chevalier Maraché, but below that, Bata Maraché, Bienvenue Bata Maraché, uh, Les Pucelles, and then Clavoyant. So theoretically, we are in the noble line. Um, the contour lines would have to be a lot more sophisticated uh, to show exactly. But actually, Clavoyant does dip down a little bit from Pucelle, particularly over on the right-hand side towards that small crossroads. Uh, and so the soil is a tiny bit heavier. and It doesn't have quite the nobility of Les Pucelle. But uh, I'm just going to <laughs> read you what I said in first edition of Inside Burgundy. I've changed this already for the second edition. Excuse me, put the light on. Um, so I said something about soil is a bit heavier than its uh, neighbours. And Clavoyant today lacks the cachet for white wines that uh, it evidently had to reds in Dr. Laval's time, because this, in fact, in the 1850s, was planted with reds. Um, but during the 20th century, it all got replanted in white. And I said, the lion's share is owned by Domaine Lafleur, where it's usually the first of the premier crews to be shown in a tasting, and indeed is priced between the village Piloni and the Falatia. When I saw Brice de la Morandia last year at the taste of 2018, he said, well, I've been able to do something about pricing it too close to the village. Uh, and he then went to say that since they've moved into biodynamics, he does feel that this vineyard has improved um, in quality. And I have to say, I did really enjoy tasting the 2017 um, of the Clavoyant uh, a, a year previously to that um, in, the, in the cellars. Um, Le Fleur were very much back in town. The new winemaker, uh, 2016 onwards, Pierre Vincent, is a smart guy and the new um, family director, if you like, Brice de la Mirandia, has reinvested heavily. They're also charging more, but they have at least really, really, really reinvested. The cellar is now in great condition. They no longer pump um, wines across the village to the other old cellar where the offices are uh, for the second six months or the, the second year, six months of it, um, when the, vine, the wines sit in tank. So they have really removed all sorts of things which weren't quite at the top of quality. Um, the other thing they've done is they've moved entirely to Diam corks uh, instead of old style corks. And they have reconditioned uh, all the back vintages in their cellar. I saw Pierre two days ago as it happened and he gave me a little tour of the storage cellars and showed me everything. And every single thing that was made in the days of normal corks, they have pulled out all the bottles, they have tested them all by Coravin. Uh, everything that makes it um, is now um, uh, being checked uh, 
bottles which have died or are dying have been removed and all the good ones are being reconditioned under um, the uncork. So in theory, nothing, whether a new vintage or an old vintage, will now leave their cellars um, without being under DM. So that's great news, uh, and um, they are, uh, they have decided to charge for the privilege, but that's absolutely fine if you're making truly great wine. Let's see how this is. I should pour it into my glass now. A happy sound of white wine being prepared to meet its final moment. Um, I'm looking at this, it's still got a, just a little tiny bit of, of gas, so good work there from the 6017, keeping it fresh. It's uh, a beautiful pale color with still the slightest green tint to it. Mm. Definitely, definitely some of the reductive um, gunflint style to this wine. Yeah. Mm. Rafi's asked which wines are elevating most in their portfolio. It is true, I, and I've said this elsewhere, that uh, I think that when you move to biodynamics, it doesn't affect all your vineyards equally, but it really pulls the socks up those of those which are a little bit underperforming. So I think Clavoyant, definitely this is, this is the view back from the domain, Clavoyant is one of those which has benefited, is on the way up. I mean, it would have been hard for them to do a better job with Pucelle than they did before. Flatia may have benefited too. That is the modern quality white burgundy nose. Hmm. Yes, um, much as I like the Puy Verzel, this is clearly a wine um, with more significance um, in every, uh, probably in every uh, uh, characteristic. I really hate to say that because I'm such a fan of the Puy Verzel. But the persistence in this wine and the way that acidity is totally entwined with the fruit, I think is really stylish. So we've got some very fresh, light fruits, slight citrus notes, there's a bit of apple, but, but, but it's not as lean as these two suggest. There is a bit more volume of flavor in there as well, tending into a little bit of uh, yellow fruit, but, but not going into the uh, super ripe uh, arena. Uh, they're not noticeably late pickers, nor are they in the, in the ultra early crowd at Le Fleuve. They began picking on the 29th of August, a few vineyards that they felt were really ready in 2017. And then they waited for a few days and then picked the rest um, during probably mostly during the first week in September. Clavoyon was one of the September ones rather than the, the starters. Um, they own almost all of this vineyard. They have 4.79 hectares out of 5.59. It's just the brothers Zana and Jean-Louis Chavi, I think are the only other owners. And good wines, but not in the same league as or price range as Le Fleuve. And it's a nice mature vineyard uh, at different dates of planting between 1959 and 1988. So even the young vines at this point were coming up to 30 and the old vines about 60. So actually when you are like Domaine Le Fleuve and you have nice big holdings of most of your vineyards, you can then replant in series and keep a very good average age all the way through, which I think is definitely helpful. Um, hmm. My ideal drinking date for the 17 Le Fleuve. Um, I'm going to resist saying I'm enjoying, well, I'm not going to resist saying I'm enjoying it now. 
But um, I have just started drinking my 2005 Le Fleve Pucelle, which is in the middle of uh, sort of pox period in general, Promox period. Um, and that wine is, is absolutely beautiful. I've still got some 2001, some 1999. So I'm, I'm never in a hurry. If you own this wine and feel like drinking it, you can, but there is more detail, more depth still to come uh, later on. Hopefully I'm going to answer your question a little bit later on about the difference I see in the wines. It, it'll, it'll emerge steadily as we go through. But let me say about these whites, uh, I think it's, um, Paul has mentioned vibrancy, flintiness, uh, bright with excellent length. Well, something I have noticed about uh, biodynamic wines is you seem to get more precision, more refinement. Wines do become a little bit more uh, vibrant and chiseled. These are the sorts of words that we end up using. Instead of being, if you compare them to how they were before on the this domain, you can do that. Um, they lose any sloppiness they might have had and do seem to gain precision. Now, almost the first experience I had with biodynamic wines was an interesting tasting that the then producer, the then importer of the two domains, Nicolas Jolie and Domaine Lefebvre, put on in London and got Nicolas Jolie and Angelo Lefebvre to come over. And they showed their wines and they talked about it. Absolutely fascinating. And being one of the first to do it, what Anne-Claude Lefebvre had done is with some of the bigger vineyards, she had said, okay, we're going to do half of it biodynamically and half of it as we did before, which was correct and you know, not, not lots of herbicides, pesticides, any other form of size, but not biodynamic. And we will serve you the two blind and we will leave you to choose. I mean, were, this was probably, I'm guessing this was about 97, 98, and the vintage was probably 93. That gives you an approximate timeline. I might not have got those details exactly right. And it wasn't absolutely, absolutely massively different, but there was a difference and pretty much everybody went in favor of the biodynamics, uh, which is really interesting. So congratulations to Anne-Claude for, for being the first, first cab off the rank in, uh, in uh, going in that direction. La Lubis Loire followed very rapidly. And we had the head of Le Loire, Lafont, Lafarge, everybody beginning with L, purely by chance. But they weren't the only people in Burgundy. Uh, it's these sorts of top domains that we are going to be looking at tonight. But there was also the, um, coming from the other end of the spectrum, if you like, there were people who I slightly uh, unfairly uh, categorize as the leftover hippies. In French, that would be les 68 arts, the, the people from the 1968 revolutionaries who typically have vineyards in the uh, less illustrious appellations and have less money to throw at things. But people like Didier Montchauvet, Jean-Claude Ratto, um, uh, Gibelot, one or two others like that, uh, who did it absolutely out of conviction. Um, sometimes they were better at growing the grapes and had less experience with making the wines. Uh, but they equally were out there. In fact, they were right at the start. They were the very first to do it. I think Jean-Claude Ratto was the first to do it. And Didier Montchauvet claimed uh, seniority in the grounds that he never stopped. There was a slight hiatus one year with Ratto. So they were doing it from, from even before Anne-Claude Lefebvre. So well done then. Dominique Durand also in Saint-Domain would be another. Um, so... Um, Whites and reds, I don't see why being biodynamic should particularly make a difference. Um, nothing has, has really occurred to me. 
but uh, delighted these people are, are doing what they're doing. Frankly, I don't think you have to understand everything that biodynamics is about. Uh, you don't have to believe in all the cosmos stuff. Um, one of the reasons it's uh, uh, they like to have cows on the vineyards, you can't really do that very easily in Burgundy, but my friends in New Zealand who've gone biodynamic have introduced cows is because cows or some cows at least have horns and so they can attract the, the rays from the cosmos, whereas horses don't. So obviously the perfect animal, if we could go out and find some, would be the unicorn. And we talk about unicorn wines these days. Pretty happy with that. Mm. Yum. Good. Um, far in any last questions on the whites, otherwise I'm going to move to the reds. Um, Barbara's asked uh, any good books I recommend to learn more about biodynamics. Um, there are plenty of articles around. Um, Jamie Good has talked a little bit on his website. Um, a few articles there. I'm going to write up a little bit more, put a bit more into the second edition of my book. And if you can see this, it came out a surprising amount of time ago, 2004. It's Monty Walden, Biodynamic Wines, and what was then the Mitchell Beasley Classic Wine Library. Um, Alice uh, Firing, F-E-I-R-I-N-G, has also written about the natural side of things, but will have included biodynamics. Um, Google and uh, information will be yours. And I think just from Nicola Jolly's book, Biodynamics. Oh wine. yes, of course. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, which is called A Wine from Sky to Earth. There you go. Uh, you can also get a little biodynamic calendar. I had one around earlier. What have I done with it? You can get various ones. One which is more um, talking about full-on biodynamics and one which is just a, a sort of a growing calendar. That's a bit silly of me. I was looking at it just beforehand and I can't see... Apologies for scrubbing around. Here it is. This one's in French. Uh, Garden with the moon. Jardinet avec la lune. And that tells me, for example, for today, that at 4.07 this morning, if I've remembered it correctly, we moved out of being uh, a leaf day, which we don't much like, and we moved into being a fruit day, which is probably the best, best of all. Um, I think I... I read that off correctly. Um, you can get overexcited about these things. Some people say that wines will taste much better if you taste them on a fruit or a flower day. Frankly, if you're drinking your wines stuck in a city somewhere, I think all the electrical pollution is just going to uh, knock that out. I do find that when I'm tasting in growers' cellars out in the rural wine-growing country, that there can be a difference. I like fruit days best. Flower days are supposed to be good, but sometimes the wine's just a little bit simple, like complexity. Root days are great if it's old vines with nice deep root systems. That seems to work. And um, what have we got left? Leaf days are the least attractive. Only the worst of all is what they call a lunar knot, when the moon is at its apogee, or maybe the moon is hidden um, in, in, a, in an eclipse behind uh, some constellation or other, or the sun, or various other things. At that moment, they have what they call a lunar knot. And apparently, according to Maria Thun, uh, she once went into a police station somewhere in, in, in Germany, sort out some minor thing, and she saw a biodynamic calendar on the wall in the police station. And she said, why have you got that up there? You're not growing any crops. 
And the policeman said, we know that whenever there's Luna Knot, there'll be a lot more traffic accidents. Accidents as people just lose their grip on things and don't uh, react as sensibly as they normally do. Believe that or not, but it's all, it, it's all part of the story in there somewhere. So uh, I find the leaf days, if anything, make the wires just seem a little bit green and hard. Uh, flower days, as I said, simple. Fruit days best, perfectly happy with root days. And one producer, Ben LaRue, when he was at the uh, Clay de Zephano, we could easily have had one of his pomars tonight, but we had the 2010 the other day, it was a great success. Um, but uh, he used to do all the work in the cellar as well on 28 day cycles uh, so that he could continue with the same phases of the moon. And just with his large cuvee, his large bottling of the Clay de Zephano, in whichever vintage it was, he deliberately broke off one section and racked it out of phase. And he then gave me two samples to taste later on. One which he kept in phase, the fruit days all the way through, and one which was in uh, out of phase. And there was a difference. And the fruit one did really emphasize the fruit character. And he'd also picked his youngest vines on a flower day, and it was a much more floral cuvee. Again, make of that what you will. Incidentally, one of the things that's really complicated about getting grips with the moon is, I don't know what you expect when I, if I talk about a, a lunar cycle. Most people think about the waxing and waning of the moon. That's just how you see it in the sky. It can also be the moon getting further away from the Earth and closer to the Earth. It can also be about uh, the moon um, being, uh, we've done high in the sky, we've done further away and closer to it. Uh, we can do it between um, how it travels through the constellations, what they call the sidereal version, um, and also uh, we've done waxing and waning, yes, so we've done that. So there are four different possible moon cycles, and they aren't all the same. They vary between 27.3 days and 29.5 days. So, nice and complicated. Good, all right, um, time to switch to red. Just reach down into my little little box, pull out my Volnais. So uh, we've got two Volnais, a 2014 from Michel Lafarge and 2010 from uh, Lafont. So if we can have the map up, if we may. I'll pour out some wine. Um, so here is Volnais, that narrow village going side to side. And um, let me just the big band of premier crews running all the way across. Uh, something I will change in the next edition of the of, of, of the book. Um, and uh, uh, we need to. Uh, Say a little thank you, big shout out to the people who, oh dear, sorry, I clicked when I shouldn't have clicked. Can we go back to the map? Um, let me just annotate where they are. For the longest time, you weren't supposed to label your um, wine um, under the name of the vineyard if it came from anything called Le Village. You see one, two, three, four, might be a couple of others, five. That's Claude Le Rougeot, that's uh, Claude La Carve des Ducs, uh, that's Claude des Ducs, that must be um, 
Claude Dovignac, and this one here, where my mouse is now, I'll change it to, to the heart. This one here is our gorgeous um, Claude du Chateau des Dieux. So until it got burnt down um, in the Middle Ages, later Middle Ages, uh, the, the Dukes of Burgundy had uh, their sort of summer palace here. And so all sorts of different aspects of the Dukes uh, get, get mentioned. So that's where this wine comes from. It's a, a monopoly, 0.57 uh, of a hectare, so quite small, and it belongs entirely to the Lafarges. And if we can move on from here, please, uh, Ronan, let's look at, we've got three little pictures. Here is the world's uh, most wonderful man until sadly he left us in January, when he had a fall at Christmas. I saw him two days before Christmas in the Saturday market in Bern. He was on great form aged 91, 92 at that point, um, and really remained completely involved all the way through. Uh, here's the horse, whose name I don't know, which they use uh, to plow this vineyard. And also they used it in, starting in 2016, they used it to pick the vineyard as well. Next picture, please. Here you can see back end of horse, and they have loaded the little uh, cachettes, they're called little trays of grapes, onto that sledge and they're taking it into the winery, which is the, the back end of the Lafarge house and their winery is that building that you can see there in the background. Uh, so away that is going to go. And uh, because this is a domain that de-stems, they've decided, I think again, as from 2016, to go back to an old fashioned way of de-stemming. Next picture. Here, so you've got this um, clay, it's called, made out of osiers and you put your bunches of grapes on and you can see by the fact that the hands are mostly out of focus, people are actually shuffling the grapes across uh, that uh, osier uh, grid. And what happens is the berries fall through and amazingly, they stay pretty much intact and you're left um, with just the stems, which you can then throw away. And as you can see, 2016, lovely vintage though it is, the stems weren't completely right that year. So um, well, let's go back, if we can go back a couple of frames and we'll, we'll have the picture of Michel Lafarge to look at uh, while we talk about the, the wine. Um, so uh, Fred Lafarge uh, took over from his dad. His dad was a brilliant winemaker and correct, better than correct maybe um, in the um, uh, vineyards, but, but not up to today's standards. Frederick has learned how to follow his father um, in terms of um, the winemaking, but has really made the big breakthrough steps forward in the vineyards. If we think about this wine, 2014, the two together would have had about 110 years of experience because Michel started making uh, wines from 1950, um, so I'll give them 64 years, and um, uh, Fred got involved from 1978, so that's 36 years. So this vintage that we're tasting now, if you have it, is 110 years of uh, Lafarge father and son experience. And now a granddaughter, Clotilde, has got involved and she's particularly keen on the horses. She learned how to do the horses when she did a stage with uh, Jean-Louis Trappé up in Chivray and has taken that on to her heart. Um, Fred Lafarge has also said to me that he thinks that one of the keys in this era of global warming um, to not having your rightness run away with you is doing your biodynamic treatments properly and he sprays little tisanes on little infusions 
on his vineyards and he said look I picked later than many people he's not an ardent late picker but he's not an early guy either in the last two three years we picked a little bit later than other people but I've had everything coming in at 12 8 13 5 at the tops uh, of the sh sugar levels we want and without the grapes feeling cooked the other thing they've done which I find rather fun is they have introduced some chickens and the chickens uh, live in that enclosure uh, just off this picture here and in the mornings when the team go out into the other vineyards they get put in a little mobile hen house um, on the little trailer behind the, the tractor or the car and they get taken out to the vineyards and they get less lo let loose in the vineyards while the, the workers work on the vines and they nibble away at all the little bugs and pests and then come lunchtime uh, Fred Lafarge will shake out a bit of grain back on the trailer and then all come scurrying back to get their grain and you'll put them back in the trailer and, and take them home. I think that's a really sweet story. And a true story. Ah, smell that if you haven't, if you have this wine and I just smelt it now. Extraordinary purity of fruit that's coming out. And what wasn't the easiest of all vintages, it must be uh, said. Um, Okay, the um, handheld distemmery is called the clay, spelled in French C-L-A-I-E. Mm. So this is young. But 2014 is a very open, fruit-forward year. Tannins are not massive. Acidity is, is there. Uh, not, I mean, it's, it, it's not an aggressively acid year, but the acidity is, is what's offering the balance in 2014. Um, if anything, though the good guys got it right wherever they are, but if anything, I prefer 2014 in the Cote de Bonne over the Cote de Nuit because they typically pick a little bit earlier. And there was some rock beginning to get in the, um, uh, in the way. Uh, David has just made the comment that do I find the Lafarge wines quite austere in a really nice way? Absolutely right. They are austere and, and in a way which I like. So, um, and uh, I, I keep these for a, uh, for a long, long time um, if I possibly can. Mm. As we saw, saw from the picture, all these stemmed into barrel um, with, with a racking after malolactic, so probably a second winter also in wood. There's hardly any new wood in this cellar, a uh, little bit, but it's really not important. It's one of the most old-fashioned cobwebby cellars that you can imagine, uh, but there is the hygiene that's necessary, and the wines uh, really rarely have uh, deviations. Uh, yeah. Mm. And in fact, the last time with the friends, we used to celebrate uh, uh, Michel's birthday every year. And the last time we had it, he produced, in, uh, he's born in 1928. And on this occasion, he produced in 1938, not at all a famous uh, vintage, Claudie Chateau de Duc, which was, was a real, real pleasure. Mm. Um, Benedict, I think it's more likely to be true of biodynamic uh, wines than other wines, which day you taste them on. See, I'm managing to follow the chat more or less as, as we go through. Um, good, all right. Well, we have a Volnet to compare, but it's not the same vintage. 
It's uh, uh, 2010, so I think we get the Volnay map back again. And I can show you where this Lafont of Volnay Champon comes from. Can we get the map back, please, Renan? Anyway, uh, I'm going to pour it while, while he, he works on that. There we go. Um, so I will put in a couple of hearts on here. So I'll remind you where the other one came from. Oh dear, sorry, apologies. Keep doing that. I've done it again. I need to move to annotate first. So that was uh, the Clos du Chateau des Ducs. And here we have En Champon, and I can put the heart exactly where there yard is. So you go down this little road here and then you turn, um, that would be turning right as if to go off towards the Volnay Sontenot down here and in that corner there is the Champon and uh, most of the um, vineyard is um, about two-thirds of it is planted in 1922 so for this wine would have been 88 years old and um, a third of it is planted uh, in 1989, which I remember because that was Dominic's uh, daughter's uh, year of her birth. And it was planted just a couple of weeks before she was born. And she will be joining us in a couple of weeks time when we have the, the, the sort of the new generation tasting. So really make sure 1st of July is in your diary because that is going to be spectacular with three of the youngsters who are taking over from mum and dad now. Much deeper colour here, um, not just because of the vintage, and 2010 has proved to be a most beautiful burgundy vintage, but also uh, Dominique is a little bit more extractive. Um, he doesn't, um, not in a bad way, uh, but it's the style of the red wines that he makes. Um, and like Lafarge, everything has been destemmed here. Um, he's got just over half a hectare out of the 11 hectares that make up Champon that he's one of the reference vignerons. For me, I find that um, Volnay really starts getting good uh, when you're over here. Ooh, I didn't mean to do that. I meant to, didn't mean to do an arrow, I meant to draw. It will get better. So over on this side, try to draw, I thought with the arrow first, meant to do, obviously. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, actually, I've gone too far down, let me clear that. Apologies, boing, kill that, kill that. Um, but if we draw again, so Taipie, Claude Echen. Why am I doing this so badly? Taipie, Claude Echen, Caillere, absolutely. Probably include Chevrolet, Champon, up here. Uh, that's the sweet spot, but we also obviously need to include Claude Duke and some of the monopolies, Claude Chevrolet Duke, who still. So also the sweet spots. Not that the others aren't good and worthy of being um, Premier Cru, but you definitely get a lift here and you also begin to get really interesting um, detail of character from one vineyard to the others. I find that the Champon uh, Chez Le Fond is a drier wine than, for example, his, his Clos de Chêne. Uh, um, 
Hmm. It's certainly showing good ripeness here. Um, little bit of oak uh, still in, in evidence. I think this, this strikes me as being very young wine still. I, since Dom really started taking over the reds and found the style he wanted to work with, which is 1989, I haven't seen a single vintage getting too old apart from maybe 94, probably not even 92, maybe just 94. Um, Mark Carrington is with us tonight, and I know that he has a theory that uh, uh, he finds the Lafon Reds a little bit over-extracted and they don't come round. I have to disagree with that. I think that they really do, and I, and I love what they uh, develop, what they turn into. On the palette now, the wine is really beginning to, uh, beginning to get that. So look forward to your comment shortly, Mark, on the, on the chat. More powerful wine than Lafarge, particularly on the nose. If I could blend the two together, I might take the nose the bouquet of Lafarge and build alongside it that extraordinary concentration of fruit on the palate. The length is there, there are no disagreeable tannins um, and very little uh, averse acidity. There is enough acidity. Mm. Mm. Yes, Rafi wants to know, how does he achieve such purity of fruit and longevity? Uh, the purity of fruit, it's partly in the growing, um, and uh, certainly this 2010. He started going biodynamic in about uh, 98. He was certified the domain for organic between 95 and 98, and by 98 he was, he was moving towards biodynamics. Actually, he had a really tricky year in, in 98, particularly as whites, but the weather conditions weren't great, and it was a struggle. But everybody, when they start out, Partly they're changing the system and they've got to learn the new system. And partly the vines have got to learn a new system, understand what it's all about um, while you've taken away their, their old um, uh, standbys, the, the things that used to give them artificial support before. So almost everybody goes through a, a really tricky year. Bisa Wire, it was uh, 93, Lafont was 98. Uh, Jean de Briay, 2007, Bobby de Martre, 2008. I mean, everybody has one year where it's really not that easy. Um, good. Well, I think those two Volnais are quite different, but, um, um, uh, but pretty exciting. Um, uh, David, I can't answer your question comparing the Lafon wines to the Jaillet wines for the same vineyards because Jaillet didn't have the same vineyards, but certainly Dominique Lafon was a good friend of Henri Jaillet's. They used to go and uh, eat game together and drink old wines and um, he wouldn't describe himself as a disciple but he certainly learned a lot from uh, Henri Jaillet and certainly um, Jaillet's uh, abhorrence of having stems in the wine uh, resonates with, with Dominique very much so. Good okay um, so on we go Lost my screen for a second, it's back. Um, if you're ready, we'll move to the last pairing. We'll do them separately. But Latricia Chambertin from Rossignol Trappe. And this wine is, is quite helpful to me in, in, in my journey, or rather its stablemate, the Chapelle Chambertin was. Uh, you can see the map. I'm not actually going to go and take control because I can show you Latricia Chambertin. It's right over there on the left-hand side. Ronan is squirreling his mouse around. That's not a mixed metaphor. On top of it, to show where it was, 
Um, so it's the last of the Grand Cru's uh, at the southern end of the village on the, the upper part of the Grand, Grand Cru slope. You're actually very close to the forest, a little bit hidden by the hill behind. Um, it loses the sun in the evening. You've got some cool air coming down. If you can see though, Ronan, if you can show the contour lines up above Latricia Chambertin, you can see that um, there, uh, to the left, there we are, stop there. Those lines there, uh, they indicate that there is a dip there. So there is what the French call a combe, a coombe in English, the combe de grisard. And so the air is a little bit colder for Latricia Chambertin, Masoya below it, than for most of the rest of Chauvry uh, Chambertin, apart from the uh, Combe de Laveau, uh, but most of the rest of the Grand Cruise, let me say. And that introduces a new topic because uh, on the, I think I'm right in saying it's going to be the 25th of June, I am going to be doing a hyphen Chambertin Grand Cru tasting. Where we're going to have a look at one each of Latricia, Masria, Charme, Mazzi, Griot, Chapelle, etc. Different producers, different vineyards, and really trying to get to grips with what uh, Chambertin satellites are all about. Good, okay, so uh, help, I need to drink up and hurry on. Seven o'clock in the evening here, so I'm not going to spit out. Also, I wish to maintain my appearance of fluency in conversation. Right, Latricia Chambertin from Domaine Rossignol Trappé. Well, Rossignol is a word we know and Trappé is a word we know. Rossignol we know because of the Rossignol tribe in uh, Volnay. And there were four people of the grandparents' generation, each of whom had more than a dozen children, I think, and mostly boys. And so the, the Rossignol tribe disappeared all over the place. There was one girl, Madeleine um, Rossignol, who married into the Trappé family uh, of Chevrolet-Chambertin. And so uh, the Trappé vineyards got divided. 50% went to the main uh, J and JL Trappé, as it is today, and 50% went to Rossignol Trappé, separation happening in 1989. And uh, both make excellent wines, both are biodynamic. Um, I find the styles of the wines really quite different. And what's fun when we do our hyphen uh, Chambertin tasting in a couple of weeks, uh, we've got one from each that we can compare, which will be good. Um, but in the late 90s, uh, the Rossignol Trappes got interested, and I tasted their 2002 vintage uh, at a sort of tabletop tasting during the Grand Jour de Bourgogne one year, and I liked the wines until one of them electrified me. It was actually the Chapelle Chambertin, not the Latricia Chambertin. And my instinct was to say, you've done something different in the vineyards. And this comes back to the point that was being asked earlier on, can you see a difference in the um, post-biodynamic wines compared to what happened before? And whichever brother it was behind the stand said to me, yes. It's fascinating that you picked that up because what happened was that um, from 97 we started, we experimented with just the Chapelle Chambertin and all the others you've tasted are non-biodynamic. This one is biodynamic and I could just taste the precision and excitement of vibrancy uh, about this wine. It was just head and shoulders above the others. And so I went and tasted their 2004s, which is the vintage they're about to sell, by which time the whole vineyard uh, area that they had had been converted to biodynamics. And uh, I started working with them. So um, 
they use stems, by the way, which uh, the first two reds don't. And um, it's less than half stems in a year like 14 when the stems aren't completely ripe, it would have been no more than a third. Uh, but you do pick that up when you smell this, you can actually pick, pick this up. Yeah. Mm. I love wines in both styles, but you may have attended my, my, my STEM seminar. Uh, uh, I do just get that special little buzz extra from STEM wines. They've got three quarters of a hectare of this. Oddly enough, the vineyard right next door, Champagne Combat, is the first they picked every year. And two weeks later, they came by and they picked Latricia, and that's the last they pick. The soil is a little heavier here, um, and it's um, uh, kept cool for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, as a result, it takes a little bit longer to ripen. And in these days where the hang time is getting shorter and shorter because the grapes are ripening too quickly from the back end of the season, uh, it's no bad thing at all. And every year uh, when I go there, if I go with other people, we play around and we taste the Latricia and the Chapelle and everybody votes, which do you prefer this year? Um, I don't now remember which I prefer between the Chapelle and the Latricia, but they're both uh, very good wines. Always there's a bit more weight, a little bit more density uh, in the Latricia. So, um, and uh, these guys are really serious uh, with the biodynamics. Um, Nicola Rossignol is um, maybe does some work in the vineyards, but he's uh, mostly in the cellar. And um, his brother David is the one who's running the vineyard team. And um, <coughs> it's not that often these days that we get top producers where the guys themselves are out in the vineyards rather than hiring somebody to be their vineyard manager. That's why in five of six, and incidentally, when we finish them all, you're going to have the chance to vote and say which you, you like the best. So let's move on to number six, which is the Bon Marf and the Main La Bougerie. Now, this is a domain which um, I know well since its inception in 1999. First winemaker was Pascal Marchand, who'd already been doing biodynamics. So from year dot, they moved into a biodynamic way of doing things. And uh, here I will put my little um, heart on the uh, bit of Bon Mar. So it's one of the two Grand Crus in um, uh, Chambon Misny. And uh, very annoyingly, a tiny fraction of it sticks over the border into Maurice Saint-Denis. So, so Maurice Saint-Denis gets to claim a bit of it. But frankly, realistically, uh, this is uh, all in Chambon Misny, even though the style of it is quite Maurice. But they are here, uh, close to the road, and it's in a little, um, what must have been a quarry at one point. This is on a little patch, little uh, oval of um, uh, around, uh, an oval shape I'll stick with, uh, below a, a rocky outcrop. It's on relatively flat land. It looks as though it shouldn't make a great Bon Mar. And every time I taste it in their cellars, I think you have made a beautiful Bon Mar. It's um, one of my very, I have a weakness for that Chambre Chambertin de Mesoyer, which we're going to have in a couple of weeks' time. But after that, the Bon Mar. Uh, nice old vines here. Um, planted, uh, uh, the youngest planted in 1998 and the oldest planted in 1901. Uh, this is 80% whole bunch, 
55% new oak, so it's probably got the biggest percentage of new oak of any wine. Earlier on, they were close to 100% new oak and a smaller percent of, of whole bunch. And what they've done over the years is they've built up the whole bunch and uh, reduced the new oak. Um, 2014 again. Hmm. A detail, a complexity. My sample is just a fraction more involved than I would expect. So that, that could be the sample. I don't know what you're all finding um, back home. I'm adoring the detail in this wine, but I know that if I had had it, if I just sort of clicked open the bottle, um, it would have been just a little bit um, uh, fresher. Um, tannins, modest. Uh, acidity, just enough, correct, not more than. Um, and it's a wine that actually 2014s on the whole uh, drink quite nicely quite early on. The man who made this wine, it's his second wine of the evening because uh, uh, this is Pierre Vincent, who then moved from 2016, he moved to Domaine Lefebvre. And uh, he sent a lovely uh, note back to uh, Domaine de Rougeret. He stayed in touch with them later on saying, you know, I really miss you guys, but I particularly miss the Bombard. Um, having said which, the scoop is that he's going to be making some red wines at the Fleuve, but uh, of course they'll have to be negotiating wines that don't have any, any answers themselves. Great, okay, map time over. We'll go back to the main screen and then I can see the chats a little bit more um, uh, better. So incidentally those maps, all, they come out of the first edition of Inside Burgundy and somebody shouted out there to uh, uh, Chris Fultz, Chris and Carrie of Seagrove Fultz who put the maps together. Uh, based on Sylvain Pitiot's maps and also it, it was Chris and Carey who did the maps for the very first edition of Hugh Johnson's Wine Atlas so they know what they're doing. Um, and while I'm, while I'm giving them a, a quick plug I will also uh, just say do please keep looking at uh, my website the Inside Burgundy website and if you feel like it we'd obviously be thrilled if you subscribed and get all the tasting notes these wines and lots of other wines. Um, we have very few minutes left. We'll do some questions and answers, but while we still have a decent number of uh, people listening in, may we have the poll, please, Sophie. And thank you for Sophie for being our, our host tonight. So we're gonna ask you the usual question. Just choose two of the wines, could be one white, could be one red, could be just any two that particularly caught your fancy tonight. For whatever reason, uh, select your two. We'll keep that going for another 30 seconds, so please do it now. And then straight away after that, we will have the poll up. And, uh, hmm, keeping sniffing at my wine. Okay, have you all voted? I hope you have. That should be long enough. Five, four, three, two, one. Kill that off. Sophie, show us the results. And the winner is La Fleur's Pidini Morishi. It was absolutely stunning tonight. Uh, and it uh, and so it killed off the poor old Puyvesel, which I liked, but it wasn't my favourite uh, time that I've 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 drank that. Um, in second place, we had the Bombard from Vougeret, Lafarge Volnay just winning the battle with Lafont, Procyon Trappe getting a few votes, but uh, uh, not winning out. Slightly smaller uh, sample, I think, than than, than usual tonight. Um, should, well, we couldn't have done it much earlier because you might not have uh, tasted the wines by then. Thank you for the participation. And let's just see, do we have any more questions to answer? Um, 
Yes, a few people on the side are putting up, putting up their favorites as well. Um, I don't have any more on the Q&A. So uh, really just to conclude then on what we think of biodynamics, you don't have to follow all the mumbo jumbo or what my friend uh, Randall Graham from Body Doom would say, uh, things which are out where the buses don't run. Um, or you can believe absolutely everything. Equally, perfectly entitled to say that these guys make good wines and the biodynamics is totally, totally irrelevant. Um, and in between the two, you can say, well, I don't necessarily understand what's going on. Certainly there aren't scientific proofs for these things, but my guess is we probably do have something special uh, that makes a difference. And, and that's where I stand. So. Thank you very much, Jasper, again. As yeah. always, thank you. When will we see you next? Uh, we will meet, um, should you wish, on Monday when I have Thibaut Jacquet. So that's the first one I've done as sort of interviewing somebody or, or sort of hosting them. What I'm going to try and do is let, let it run as much as possible and, let, and then just uh, make sure we tease out a few interesting points. But it's going to be Thibaut Jacquet, who is now, uh, I'm not sure his official title, but we'll say general manager at Domaine Bonneau du Martre. And there for that one, we've got wines going back to the 1993 vintage. Um, so that's on Monday at the same time. On Thursday, I've got young Benjamin LaRue, uh, sort of superstar of the um, mini negotiant or midi negotiant he's built up to. Uh, and that will be really interesting because I have selected the wines I really like from his range. Uh, so I've got those two next week. Stay tuned. And uh, enjoy the rest of your evening and we'll we'll see you then okay thank you very much jasper Good thanks night. brenda thanks sophie i'm off bye